From the Old City, a practical Torah commentary by Gutman Lodge. Numbers 32. Matos. Watch what you say. This week's portion begins with Hashem commanding that whenever a man takes a vow or swears to restrict himself, he must follow through with the promise. The portion ends with the tribes of Ruvain and God requesting to settle on the other side of the Jordan. They preferred that land rather than having a share with the rest of the tribes who were about to take possession of the land on this side of the Jordan. Moshe told them that they could settle on that land only on the condition that they would join their brothers, the rest of the tribes, in the battle for the land of Israel. They agreed and promised to do as Moshe said. So it is logical for the portion to begin with the strict laws commanding us to carry out what our promises are and to do whatever we say we will do, and to end with Moshe accepting Ruvain and God's promise. Hasidus teaches that we not only must keep our expressed promises, but also warns us to watch very carefully every word we say. We are taught to say only good things to avoid creating any negative influences from our words. Not only are we warned about our words, but we are also told to think good. The saying goes, think good and it will be good. Do words and thoughts really have the power to change the physical world? Are words and thoughts real? Aren't they merely dissipating waves of energy? How can they affect anything? The soul is said to have a number of garments. These are thought, speech, and deed. Actually, the body is also a garment to the soul, but the body is a relatively fixed reality. Whereas thought, speech, and deeds are always changing completely, coming and going anew. The body is more or less the same from moment to moment. What we see about these three garments is that the soul not only vivifies them as it does the body, but the soul actually forms them. When the soul leaves the body at the end of its life, the body does not immediately disappear. It begins to slowly decompose. But when the soul leaves a thought, word, or deed, that thought word, or deed immediately ceases to exist. Only their repercussions go on. This means that the soul is putting itself into these garments and is not only choosing how the garments are to function, but is actually forming and becoming that garment. By putting its spiritual essence into the world, whether it is as a thought, word, or deed, the soul is giving its life to creating that idea. The soul is a portion of God on high, and this spirituality is filling and forcing that garment into the world. So we begin to see why it is so important to think good. We see how our thoughts can go on to become our words and our deeds. What started out as being merely a thought may very well end up changing the physical world through its deed. But even if it remains a thought, still it is a reality. What can we do if we have a bad thought? Do we have control over what we think? Even our words are difficult to control. 
Even our grossest deeds are at times difficult to control. How can we rectify a bad thought, a bad word, or even worse, a bad deed? If these do go out into the world, how can we possibly call them back? The remedy for a bad thought is a good thought. Whenever you find yourself thinking bad thoughts, simply fill the mind with good thoughts. The mind doesn't care which it has, it just wants to be active. When you find yourself saying something bad, simply say something good. In fact, it is a good practice to say two good things for every bad thing you say. And when you find yourself doing something wrong, turn quickly and do something right. Just like we dress our bodies in the finest clothing we have, certainly we should dress our soul in the finest garments we have. Spiritual Immersion In this week's portion of the Torah, some of the laws regarding the spiritual cleansing of food utensils are given. One of the requirements to kosher a vessel is to dip it into a qualified gathering of water, a mikvah. The laws regarding the physical requirements and use of a mikvah are many. For instance, some immersions required specific intention. And if that intention would be lacking, then that immersion would not be sufficient. For example, when a Kohen prepared himself to eat sanctified food, he had to have in mind which type or level of sanctification that food was, and he would immerse with that in mind. However, in another case, if a Jew brought a pot that needed to be immersed in a river without any intention to conquer it, still, since it passed through a qualified body of water, it would become kosher to hold food. The requirement to immerse a food vessel applies only to a vessel that is owned by a Jew. A vessel that is clean but owned by a Gentile may be used to cook food for a Jew, even though it had not been immersed in the mikvah. This means that a Jew can borrow a clean vessel from a Gentile, cook his kosher food in it, and eat that food from that vessel. However, if the Jew bought that same pot from the Gentile and cooked that same food in it, the Jew would not be allowed to eat that food from that pot. He would have to transfer that food to a kosher vessel before eating it. We see that a Jewish food vessel, even though it is clean, cannot be kosher until it has been immersed. So the same food can be eaten or not from that pot depending upon who owns the vessel and not merely on the condition of the pot itself or the food's cleanliness. Why should a pot's ownership determine whether the food is permitted or not? This can be likened to a Jew who lent money to a Gentile for interest. Whereas a Jew is forbidden to charge interest to a fellow Jew, he is allowed to charge interest to a Gentile. Lending at interest is a perfectly legal arrangement. However, if that Gentile, who owed the Jew that money, would convert to Judaism and immerse in a mikvah, the interest due on that loan may not be collected. It is forbidden. Since it is the same pot and the same food before and after the ownership was transferred, and it was the same loan before and after the Gentile converted, we see that the requirement and result on immersion is entirely spiritual and not physical at all. How could dipping something into a pool of water possibly change its nature? 
What does a convert's immersion into a mikvah have to do with his receiving a Jewish soul? Why doesn't scrubbing in a shower permit a wife to her husband, but immersion in the mikvah does? Also, a child is born to a woman who did not immerse in the mikvah before its conception is called blemished. This child may very well have less favorable characteristics than the child who was conceived after the mother went to the mikvah. What is it about the mikvah that can reach into the next generation? Seemingly, it is just a physical pool of water. The spiritual workings of the mikvah are unknown to us but its benefits are known. The benefits of a pure family life are so great that Jewish women have been known to travel hundreds of miles to reach a mikvah and only then allow their intimate marital life to resume. Jewish men have been sent into bitter exile in Siberia for many years when the oppressive communist government caught them digging mikvahs. But to the spiritual seeker, the strongest reason to take advantage of the mikvah every day is the Baal Shem Tov's testimony. He said that he attributed his great spiritual height to his frequent use of the mikvah. There is one.com.